Open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1, continuing here with our study in the book of Ephesians, and in particular with our exposition of verse 4, entitling this series of messages, Chosen Before Time, Chosen Before Time. We find ourselves, and this is the third message from this passage, and we have uh, at least one more to go beyond that, perhaps two, we'll see. But as we are jumping into the deep end of the pool here, we are studying the doctrine of sovereign election, and I decided, as I told you last week, to stop and camp out here for a little bit and to really look at this, uh, this wonderful jewel from many different angles. Uh, it is so rich, and uh, I also know that there are many questions that people have, and we're attempting to try to address, we can't address every question uh, on a Sunday morning to be sure, but we're trying to address the major questions and bring some clarity perhaps uh, for some of you. Uh, for others, uh, just it will confirm things that you have known and believed, then you will find a great joy in the study of, of God's sovereign election. There are, uh, there are those that are uh, good-intentioned, I believe, that, that seek to to try to explain and reconcile some of the obvious difficulties that exist when one begins to talk about the doctrine of sovereign election and uh, man's moral responsibility. And uh, sometimes people resort to analogies or, or uh, statements that they think uh, can provide some clarity or some hope and help for people who are wrestling with with these uh, really weighty issues. And one of the ones that I've heard before that uh, I share with you now because it's so troubling to me, and so uh, this is an opportunity, if you've ever used this, uh, for you to repent here and now and to purge it uh, from your vocabulary and your thinking. And it's like this. Um, election and human choice are like two parallel lines that meet in eternity. And when uh, one first hears that, they begin to scratch their chin and go, whoa, that's deep. <laughs> no, that's irrational, actually. That's a foolish statement. Parallel lines, by definition, do not meet anywhere. If they do meet, they are no longer parallel. Exactly. So... God is true and the source of all truth. God is not irrational. God is not a contradiction, and God does not engage in contradictions. And neither must his people. So as we examine these doctrines, there is much we can learn and state with a certain uh, clarity and finality, but certainly at the end of the day, we will have to say that the finite cannot encompass the infinite, and that there is a place where we will take to heart the words of John Calvin, which is to teach thy tongue to say, I do not know. So, we are here in Ephesians. It would be good if I read the text. Uh, you're one of those preachers, you know, they read a text and then depart from it, never to return again. 
hope I'm not guilty of that. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 1. I'll just pick it up in verse 3 because it leads into verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. We said that this verse 4 here contains... Uh, four facets of God's sovereign election that we want to look at so that we might uh, join with the Apostle Paul in rejoicing in the, in the glorious and gracious love of God. This section from verses 3 through 14 is, is just a doxology. It's just an outpouring of praise from the heart of the Apostle Paul as he considers the glorious nature of God and his sovereign election. And so we're looking just at that first facet. That's all we've been attempting here in the last few weeks, that first one being the reality of God's sovereign election. And you remember we, two weeks ago, traced God's election through the Bible from beginning to end. And then last week we came back and we said there are some common objections that are are raised to this and that it would be only fair if we were to try to acknowledge them and provide some answer to them. And so that's what we started last week, and that's what we'll finish, Lord willing, this week. So there are seven, and there are many, many more, but I have just seven, seven common objections to election. And the first one that we looked at last week was one that is typical, which is it's not fair, right? Or it's unfair. And uh, we looked in that at some detail. I'm not going to go over all that again. If you weren't here, you can get, go online and get that. So the first objection was it's unfair. The second objection that, that we looked at last week was what about free will? And so we spent some time looking at that as well and, and discussing exactly what is the human will and is it really free and so forth. And again, you can go back and, and get the teaching on that. So here we are. We're going to launch into number three. So the third common objection with regard to God's sovereign election here, and this is God's sovereign election as it relates to the salvation of a sinner. That's where we're focusing that because most people don't have any problems with God's sovereign election in every other realm except this one. And so the third objection here is that election is fatalistic. Election is fatalistic. If I understand what you're saying here, preacher, then what you are, what you are um, telling us is that, that we live in a world of fatalism, right? The charge of fatalism is often attached to the doctrine of election, and, and when it is attached to it, it is, it is meant to assert that human choices and decisions really don't make any difference. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I decide. Uh, God is sovereign as you're teaching here, and so really I just live in this, this um, mechanistic world, an impersonal universe in which everything is already wired ahead of time and it really doesn't matter. I'm just a puppet. I'm just a robot. And of course, the derivative of that would be if I'm just a puppet, just a robot, then I don't have any moral responsibilities, right? So... Is sovereign election fatalism? Answer, no. No, it is not. Fatalism, as I said, is is the idea of an impersonal, mechanistic universe. And yet the Bible is very, very clear that God is personal. 
God is personal, and thus his election is personal. It is an outpouring of the love of the Father for the Son. And we looked at that a number of weeks back, remember, in a message entitled, God is not cold. The Father loves the Son. He has loved Him eternally. He has loved Him perfectly. He is in perfect intertrinitarian fellowship and relationship with the Son and the Spirit. And it is because of that that He opens that up to us through His sovereign election. Notice here in verse 5, where it says, at the end of verse 4, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. That is, there is nothing impersonal about that at all. It is in love that a personal God reached out personally to us. Beyond that, the, the, the Bible is, is filled with pleas for people to repent to turn from their sin, and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not indicative of a fatalistic universe. In fact, just the opposite is indicative of a universe in which our moral choices and decisions affect eternal outcomes. That we really are required and called upon to repent and believe. Now, it all happens under the umbrella of God's sovereign election, to be sure. But God is not toying with us. God is not messing with us. God is not mocking us. He is calling upon us to repent and believe. And, and if you will flip back to, the le- to your left to uh, John's gospel, perhaps uh, that's as good a place as any to see this in John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and beginning in verse 16. Our moral choices and decisions effect eternal outcomes. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. There is an appeal to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible ends with an appeal in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, where the text reads, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The Bible uniformly calls upon people to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Election is not fatalistic. It is a personal God who reaches out in love to individuals, calling them to himself. 
Fourth. Fourth objection. If uh, the elect will be saved, then why do people need to believe the gospel? If the elect are going to be saved, then, then why do people need to believe the gospel? Well, the answer to that is actually rather simple, and it's simply this, that the means by which people are saved is faith in the message of the gospel. It's as simple as that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are saved by faith in the message of the gospel. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the gospel that you have believed. This is the gospel in which you stand. This is the gospel that secures your salvation. Peter writes in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Or as Paul himself says here in his letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You have been saved by grace through faith. Now, beloved, it is the secret work of election that assures the effectiveness of this gospel call. It is what makes the preaching effectual in people's lives, but it is faith in the gospel message. The reality and truth of the gospel message of Jesus, crucified, buried, and raised again, that save our souls. It's how Paul could have confidence as he preached in Corinth, according to Acts chapter 18 and verses 9 and 10, where God says to him, I have many people in this city. Well, another objection that is raised is if the, elect, if the elect will be saved, then why evangelize? Right? If the elect will be saved, then why bother evangelizing? I mean, why not stay home? I hate those conversations anyways. They get so uncomfortable, right? I mean, after all, if the elect will be saved, and that's what the Bible seems to be teaching here, then why bother to evangelize? It's, it's kind of a similar question to the one we just looked at. So here's a few reasons. First reason, if the elect will be saved, why evangelize? Number one reason, because God commanded it. How's that? Because God commanded it. The God of the universe commanded it. Actually, that ought to be sufficient, don't you think? 
That ought to be enough. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's enough. God commanded it. But beyond that, because God ordains not just the end, but the means to the end. God ordains the means to the end, not merely the end. Not just that God chose the elect who will respond to the gospel, but God has ordained the means by which the elect will respond. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word about Christ. Verse 14, How will they hear without a preacher? That's what God has ordained. The faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word about Christ. God ordains the means, not just the end, and the means God has ordained is the preaching of the gospel. The elect to be saved, why evangelize? Well, it is God's election that grants courage to preach the gospel and to Preach the gospel in the face of severe opposition. I mean, think about it this way. If, if, it, if you couldn't go forth in the secure knowledge that, that God will make the gospel message effectual in the hearts and minds of those whom He has chosen, when the going gets tough, it would be pretty easy to pack it up and get going. And so we find in 2 Timothy chapter 10 that... The Apostle Paul says exactly that. That is, it is confidence and election that, that moved him to evangelize despite severe opposition. Verse 10, 2 Timothy chapter 2, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal life. I endure all things for the sake of the elect because I know that they will receive eternal life through the preaching of the gospel. If the elect will be saved, why evangelize? Well, because Jesus taught the necessity of evangelism and election the truth of evangelism and election side by side himself in Matthew's gospel chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Those are strong statements on sovereign election. And then notice verse 28, come to me, come to me, 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Side by side, we have Jesus declaring sovereign election and gospel invitation. If the elect will be saved, why evangelize? Because that's how God set it up. Because that's how God set it up. And we would acknowledge he is wiser than us, wouldn't you think? Indeed. Sixth. A sixth objection that is commonly raised is that election is based upon God's foreknowledge of our future belief. Election is based upon the foreknowledge of our future belief. It's, it's, it's sort of articulated this way. That yes, the Bible teaches election unto salvation. There, there can be no denying that. But it, but it speaks of being elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So those who, who put this forth, they, what they would say to you is, is, that, is that what the Bible is telling us is, is that God looks down the corridors of time. He looks way out into the future. And, and he sees and he knows who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in light of that knowledge, that foreknowledge, that knowledge before the event occurs, he elects unto salvation those who choose to believe on Christ. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. At least that's how it's articulated. Beloved, there are all kinds of problems with this. All kinds of problems. Not the least of which that it makes man the initiator and God the responder, right? It makes man the initiator and God the responder. Now, there are a couple of um, passages that are, that are often referred to in support of this idea that elect according to the foreknowledge of God means that God is looking ahead of time he knows something ahead of time, and on the basis of what he knows, he acts. So Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is a very common passage that is referred to. Romans 8 and verse By the way, I, I find it amusing that those who would, would teach this point of view can do so while still claiming verse 28. Right? I mean, if God is causing all things to work together for good, that kind of um, portrays God in a certain light, don't you think? Anyway, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, there it is, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So, it says it right there. How could you argue with this? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. 
There, proof. Except for one thing. It doesn't really say what it's being asserted to prove. Such as the verse says nothing about God knowing in advance a fact about an individual. It doesn't say, for those whom God foreknew would choose to follow Christ, he then predestines unto salvation. It doesn't say that. It actually says that God foreknows people in advance. Take a look at the pronoun here. It's a very, very personal pronoun. Those whom he foreknew. It speaks about people. He foreknew people. Not that he foreknew something about the people or something that the people were going to do. It's that he foreknew them. He foreknew them. That, my friends, speaks of relationship. Speaks of relationship. Hang on to that and turn to the right to 1 Peter chapter 1, where again we see the same kinds of language, and this is another proof text for the notion that, that God elects those whom he knows, right? He chooses those whom he knows will choose him. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Again, I want you to look carefully and notice that it doesn't say that God knows facts about people. It does not say that. Rather, what he says here is that there are these believers that he, are, that he is writing to, and they are chosen according to foreknowledge. They are chosen. The idea that God is a responder and man is the initiator, the idea that God just, you know, he has perfect knowledge of future events and, and based on the outcome of these future events, he makes his plans, that is a philosophical commitment. It is a philosophical commitment in search of a proof text. And these two proof texts on any kind of closer examination, they just don't hold up. They don't hold up. What does it mean that God foreknows an individual? What does that mean? To be known by God is to be loved by God. To be known by God is to be loved by God. It involves a relationship between God the Father and that individual. It's a relational term. Take a look down to verse 20. This same letter, 1 Peter. Pick it up at the end of verse 19. Christ, right? For Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. 
For Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So is that telling us that God looked down the corridors of time and saw what Jesus would do? And on the basis of what he saw Jesus would do, he then chose Christ to do it? What kind of gospel would that be? But beloved, the the answer is right here in the text. It is the Father's foreknowledge of Christ. It It is the relationship of the Father with Christ before the foundation of the world that actually makes Jesus' blood precious. Verse 19. Right? You are you're redeemed, not with perishable things, verse 18, but with precious blood. With precious blood. What makes the blood of Christ precious to the Father? It is the relationship between the Father and His Son. The relationship that is spoken of here as God's foreknowledge. The Father's foreknowledge of the Son. It, is, it, it speaks of that relationship. Father and Son, in close, intimate relationship before the foundation of the world. When the Bible speaks of God the Father for knowing you, what it means is that His love for you existed before you did. His love for you existed before you did. Hence the title of this mini-series, right? Chosen Before Time. Seventh. Seventh. Doesn't the Bible say that God desires for all men to be saved? Doesn't the Bible say that God desires all men to be saved? Yes, it does. And since the Bible says that God desires all men to be saved, then then obviously he would not specifically choose certain individuals to be saved and pass over the rest. So we we need to look at a... Look at a passage. Let's take a look at 2 Peter. Well, actually, let's take a look at 1 Timothy. Let's go there first. 1 Timothy 2.4. 1 Timothy 2.4. 1 Timothy 2.4, picking, picking the subject up at the end of verse 3. God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Bingo. Says it. Yes, it does. Now we can look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Peter writes, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So now we need to think. We need to think. So in thinking about these two passages, I think it's obvious, first of all, that that if God sovereignly desires all people to be saved, if that's what he wants to happen, then it will happen. Or he will not be omnipotent. If God can't bring to pass what he wants to happen, then he's not omnipotent. In fact, if if we assert from these passages that, that what the Bible is saying here is, is that God wants every single person to be saved, then that would mean that the only place in the universe that is outside the sovereignty of God is the human heart, right? Because what do we know? Everybody is not saved. That's the sad reality. Everybody is not saved. So if, if our first blush and read on this is that this is what God wants, and it obviously doesn't happen, then there's something wrong here. Or maybe it, what's wrong is that we're not really understanding what this passage is saying. And again, we're coming to it with a, with a pre-understanding of what it must mean. By the way, the, um, the line of thinking that, uh, that God wants all people to be saved will, or could, maybe I should say could, could lead to the, to the conclusion of universalism. That is that God will save everyone. Not in this life, but in the next. That's a heresy. That's heresy. So there are obviously some some self-imposed limits on God's desire here. There are some self-imposed limits. So in in light of that, I'd I'd like to suggest two possible ways to understand what's being taught here in 1 Timothy 2 and 2 Peter 3. So the first is this. We could understand these verses are are speaking of what some theologians refer to as the revealed will of God. The revealed will of God. That That is telling people what they should do. For example, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the revealed will of God. That's what people should do. That's what God desires people to do, is to love Him. The revealed will of God. At the same time, the theologians say, God has a hidden or decretive will, which is his eternal plan for what will actually happen. 
And it is this, this hidden will, this decretive plan that, in, that ensures that a remnant will ultimately fulfill his revealed will. And these two do not perfectly overlap. And why they don't perfectly overlap is hidden from our sight within that decretive will of God. For example, Deuteronomy 29.29, right, the... um, the seminarian's favorite verse for his ordination exam, which says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Right? In other words, there are, there are things that God does and knows that are hidden from us. They are secret to us. We cannot know them. Ephesians, by the way, just to Keep this thing rooted in uh, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 speaks of this decretive will. It says, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. That is, that, that all things in this universe follow the counsel of God's will. They they complete His plan as it is revealed in space and time. So some, seeking to uh, reconcile the the statement that God desires all men to be saved, right? God God is patient, desiring you to come to repentance. As the tension between God's revealed will and God's hidden or decretive will. And they leave it there. By the way, I think it's probably a good idea to say that, you know, uh, isn't God merciful? Yes. Yes. God is merciful. God is fully merciful. God is the definition of what mercy is. It is His character. God cannot help but be merciful. It's not something He decides one morning to do, and the next day He's not so sure. He is merciful. God is also just. And He's not a little bit just and a little bit merciful. He is fully and entirely just. It is His nature to be just. He cannot help but be just. He is perfectly just. And He is perfectly merciful. If you're struggling with that, perhaps it would be helpful to you to just think about the incarnation where Jesus is revealed to us in Scripture as fully human and fully divine. So once you've figured that out, then you can come over to here and you will have some insight to help you. I'm facetious with you. Right? Or if you don't like that, Why don't you just sit down and define eternity for me? There's just stuff we don't know, folks. Stuff we don't know. So that's one possible solution. There's another, and actually it's my preference is the other. So I'll give you this other one here, which is my preference, and I need to finish up here. Uh, The other approach is to uh, go back to 1 Timothy and to take a look at the context You know, the first rule of real estate is uh, location, 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 right? 
The first rule of Bible interpretation is context, context, context. So here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 in the statement in verse 4 that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth occurs in a context. And the context in which it occurs is verses 1 to 5, where Paul says, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Paul is dealing in this passage with the reality that Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And thus it is only through the one mediator that that men can come to God, both those that are high-born, like kings, and those who are low-born. In other words, being a king, who at the time this was written would be the pinnacle of human achievement and power and authority, and, you know, if you talk about somebody who doesn't need anything, it would be a king, right? And Paul says, even kings have only one mediator between God and them, the man Christ Jesus. So I believe what Paul is speaking of here when he says where he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth is that he is speaking about all types of men. That God desires all types of men. Now we know when the Bible uses the word all, it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing in every context. In other words, we know that its use doesn't mean all men without exception. In every context. In fact, frequently it means all men without distinction. Not all men without exception, but all men without distinction. Again, let me illustrate it for you from John's Gospel, John chapter 12. John 12, verse 32, where Jesus says, John 12, verse 32, if I am lifted up, From the earth, I will draw all men to myself. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Right? He's referring to his crucifixion. Now, he's obviously not referring to all men without exception because not all men are drawn to Christ and saved. So what does he mean? He means all men without distinction. And we see the reality of that in John's later writing in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. If I be lifted up, Jesus said, I will draw all kinds of men to myself. I will draw men from every conceivable tribe, tongue, people, and language. Now, following that same approach here in 2 Peter 3, and the context is about God apparently delaying and bringing the final judgment, right? 
Peter says here that, that the delay is not because God is slow, but because He is patient towards Peter's audience. Right? The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He is desiring that, that all those to whom Peter is writing would repent and believe. How do I know that? Well, verses 11 through the end of the chapter, and I'm not going to take the time to read it to you, but that's exactly what it says. Since all these things, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness, in holy conduct and godliness, Right? The point of the, of the passage that Peter is making here is that, is that God is being patient so that you, whom He is writing to, will embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and live for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he's holding back the judgment. So he's not addressing the human condition in general. He's, he's addressing a condition that is, that is specific to those hearers of the first century. But by extension, by application, we can certainly say here this morning, listen, if you're here this morning and you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not walking in fellowship with Him, if your life is not what it's supposed to be, then God is being patient with you. And he's being patient with you because he desires you to come to Christ and to live for him. Don't spurn his patience. Let's pray. Our Father, there is um, much more that could be said, no doubt, on these topics We have said a lot, and it brings us face to face with, with your sovereignty and the mystery of the Godhead rooted in the love of Christ, your love for Christ and his for you, and, and consequently your love for us. And so, Father, as we think on these things, let us not just approach them in an academic fashion. Let our hearts be captivated by the glories and wonders of all of this. Let us, with the Apostle Paul, be able to pray, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. O oh God, let it be.